Welcome to the City Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. As a community of faith, we are passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus. Amen. Well, we're in Acts chapter 17, and today we're going to pick up where we left off, which was Acts chapter 17 and verse number 16. And what we're doing is we are being reunited with the Apostle Paul while he waits in the city of Athens for his two buddies, Silas and... And who? Silas and who? Timothy, right? Silas and Timothy. You guys got to help me out. I know it's 9 a.m., right? I'm sorry, 9 a.m. It's the early service. I know it's tough, right? But we gotta, we gotta, <laughs> we gotta get our minds together here. And so he's waiting in Athens for Silas uh, and Timothy, and he's waiting for them to join him so that they can continue on uh, in their. Uh, missionary journey together. Now, Paul had had some difficulties in the last few months, hadn't he? Man, he had been beaten. He had been put in prison. uh, He had been stoned until dead. uh, And more than that, he had had mob after mob after mob slandering him, uh, slandering his reputation, and literally chasing him out of cities, saying, you need to get out of this city. And all of this was happening to the Apostle Paul. And so for those believers that were there, they hoped that when Paul went to Athens and they left him there by himself for a little while, I think they were hopeful that he would maybe relax just a little bit, right? Take a little bit of a break. Uh, My family and I are going on vacation this week. I'm very excited about it. And guess what I'm going to do on vacation? Relax. I'm going to chill out. You know, I'm looking forward to that break. And maybe that's what they were hoping for uh, for Paul, but we don't see that happening. Instead, what we see is Paul kind of taking it to another level as he then uh, has his heart stirred within him. And we see that in verse number 16, if you remember from last week, it says, and while Paul waited for them in Athens, his Spirit was stirred within him. Why was his spirit stirred? Well, his spirit was stirred when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. His heart was stirred within him because he saw the, the city of Athens run over, overrun with idolatry. And what he saw was not only the blatant worship of man-made idols. We understand that was an aspect of it. But even more than that, what we see here is that they were a, a city given over to the worship or misplaced worship worship of the things of this world. Uh, They worship the arts, they worship philosophy, they worship uh, wealth, and it was such a big part of who they were that it was said that of the city of Athens, there were three times more idols in the city and altars in the city, two idols, than there were people. They estimate 10,000 people lived in the city, there are over 30,000 idols within it. So if you can imagine, everywhere you walk, there would have been a remembrance to some god or some thing that people there were uh, worshiping, and Paul, when he saw that as a Christian, his His heart was stirred within him, and it was stirred in a couple of different ways. It was stirred in the fact that there was righteous indignation. You know, looking at our world today and the things that they worship, there should be a little bit of righteous indignation in your heart. Here's why. Because it's against our God. It's against a holy God. And there should be some righteous anger. But not only should there be some righteous anger, but that stirring involves a compassion as well for those people. There should be that mixture of frustration that they are turning away from the one true God, but there should be a compassion recognizing that you can share with them the truth. And if they would just listen, if they would just repent, if they would just turn their hearts over to Jesus Christ, then there can be that change within them. And that's what was happening in Paul's life. He recognized the lost condition of the people. And so what Paul saw led to what he felt. And then we see those two when they come together, the feelings along with what he saw in there, what we see then is a movement to action, uh, something that 
led him to reveal his love for God and his love for people that are without Christ. Now, here's a unique truth about being a Christian today. And this is something that we can celebrate, okay? This is something we can celebrate as Christians, and it's this. Uh, the Holy, because of the Holy Spirit that is within us, we are uniquely affected by things more than a person without Christ. There are more dimensions to us than a person who does not know Christ to the person who does not have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling him. And guess what? That's a good thing. Because for us, it allows us to feel more deeply. It allows us to have more compassion than other people because of what God is doing with us. And, and, and because of the Holy Spirit within us, because of the love that, that can flow through us, a unique love that's only because of Jesus Christ, it then leads us to take actionable steps that can actually make a difference. I don't know if those two go together, but actionable steps that actually make a difference based off of our faith. you got to think for centuries it has been believers who were the leaders in difference making. If you look back at the history of things such as hospitals, <laughs> uh, things like uh, the, medical, uh, uh, the, the medical field, really, a lot of the areas of compassion of medicine, hospitals, orphanages, uh, homeless shelters, all of those were based out of people of faith. People who, uh, you know, if you ever go down to the U.S., it doesn't, we don't really see it up here much in Vancouver, but if you go in the U.S., I mean, almost every hospital is Baptist hospital, Methodist hospital, you know, so, uh, uh, whatever. It's some faith-based, a lot of them, because that's the history of it. Many of the universities were based out of a desire to share the gospel. They were seminaries originally for many of them, and it was all based out of a desire. Christians have a desire to educate. They have a desire to help. They have a desire to make a difference, and it's because of Jesus Christ. It's really only been in recent history that a lot of those things have been taken over by government programs. And we can argue back and forth whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> I think it's a detriment in some ways, and I think it's a benefit in some ways. Detriment, I think, to the church mainly because we maybe aren't as involved as we used to be or as we should be. But we can talk about that another time. But as Christians, the point is, God has placed in us a great desire to make a difference and further his work. And while some people are uniquely blessed to uh, move forward in a social change or changes that need to take place within the society, others are uniquely blessed in their ability to fund change or to help uh, move things along. The actuality of our life's impact is seen in our calling and our ability to share the life-changing gospel with the world. Because that is every Christian's calling, isn't it? To share the gospel with those all around us. And it's this calling that we see Paul begin to pursue. And honestly, Paul does a great job at it, doesn't he? He does a great job of following the call of God. And he, what he is doing here is he begins to take advantage of his time in Athens and he takes advantage of his time to make a difference right where he was in that moment. You notice he did not wait for his friends to come before he started trying to do something. And for us today, we cannot wait. We cannot sit around and wait for somebody else to serve the Lord. We've got to start serving God right where we are and right where he has placed us. And that's what we see, Paul. And so over these next 18 verses that we're going to look at today, what we see here is Paul living out the calling of a Christian in a very powerful and a unique way as he shares the gospel with three different groups of people in three different locations within the city. Now, the first two groups he covers in one verse. Look at verse number 17. First two groups and places. He says, therefore, disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews. So that's place number one. He first went to the synagogue and he spoke to the Jews. Then with the devout persons and, it says, in the market daily with them 
that met with him. Well, that stirring in his heart led him to try to make a difference. So he goes to the synagogue and he goes to the marketplace of the city. In essence, what he's doing is he is speaking to anyone who would listen. Uh, he is talking to anybody at all who would, uh, who would listen to what he had to say. And he knew that if he went to the synagogue, being a trained Pharisee, he'd at least have an opportunity there. So he goes there and he speaks to the Jews. It says the devout persons. What that is a reference to is to uh, Greeks who were seeking after God. And so they were not Jews, but they were going to the synagogue to hear about God. And so he would go and he would share it with them. But then it tells us that he went to the marketplace. Uh, The marketplace was called the Agora. And I've got a picture here of what it would be like within the city. Uh, This is uh, just sort of a standard idea. This is not Athens uh, specifically, but a basic idea of how it would be. And it's that center area. See, there's a a fountain there in the middle. And, of course, surrounded by homes and a temple and other things that are in the area. And it was a place where people would gather together. Of course, they would gather and do business. Uh, That was a main uh, point of, uh, of connection. You know, it's not like today where we're like, hey, meet me at this building or meet me at my office. They would always go together. Everyone would go to the marketplace and they would do business there. Now there'd be trade, there'd be uh, things going back and forth. But notably in Athens, it was also a place where people who needed work would go. It's kind of like, you know, you ever go to those places? Uh, I, I used to work uh, when I was first getting a job. I, I used to go to this place called Labor Ready here in Vancouver. And basically I would just show up, you know, and I have my steel-toed boots and a hard hat. And that meant I was ready to go. And so I would show up and they'd pay me a terrible wage and I would go and I would do terrible work. But uh, I come back and I get a little paycheck and I'd be like, this is what isn't, I remember one, I'll tell you one, I was down in Richmond. I was all excited. I needed money. I was in college. I was like, I got I to gotta work this summer. I didn't have another job yet. So I go to Labor Ready. I put on these boots. Actually, I had to buy boots. I didn't have them. And I had to buy a helmet that day. So pretty much my whole paycheck, right? And I went to Richmond. And what they had me do, do you know they had me do? Carry rolls of carpeting up five flights of stairs to the fifth floor because the elevator was broken. That was my job for the entire day. Whole rolls, eight-foot rolls of carpet by myself, one step at a time. Uh, anyway, uh, I didn't go back the next day, actually. <laughs> I, said, I said, it's not worth it. I got boots and a helmet out of it. So that was a good day for me, I guess. But man, it's terrible. Anyway, but some, there's places like that where if you just need work, you just show up and someone will come by, you know, hey, get in the truck. We're going to go and work for the day. And so that's what the marketplace was like. And so Paul, when he went to the marketplace, there was people there. People maybe just sitting around. People didn't have uh, anything to do for the day. And so he would go and he would preach to them and he would give the gospel to them. It did not matter to Paul who he was engaging. That's the message of the church. Our job is not to only try to reach a certain group of people. Sometimes churches are accused of that. Oh, you only want to reach a certain type of people. Listen, the church is for everybody, for all walks of life, all uh, socioeconomic backgrounds. That is who the church is for. And Paul demonstrated that by going to the religious. He went to those that maybe had nothing, had no jobs, uh, were just part of the marketplace. And he witnessed and he spoke to them. And his desire was to talk to anyone. And there in Athens, people were willing to listen. But people were also willing to discuss with him. And that's a unique aspect about Athens. In other cities, what do we see? He preached the gospel and people would yell at him, right? (laughs) They would attack him when he would preach. But in Athens, being the philosophical city that it was, people were also willing to discuss with him. It was a city full of philosophers. And so when he came with this message, people were like, hey, we want to hear this. We want to talk about this. It'd be like if you went to uh, the UBC, University of British Columbia, and you went down there to their graduate philosophy class, And you walked in and you said, I would like to talk today about the meaning of life. Guess what? 
they'd want to talk about that, right? Because there'd be a whole room full of graduates who are in philosophy and they would have a whole bunch of opinions and they would want to go and talk back and forth. And so that's what we see here in Athens. Paul's preaching to these two groups, but there's a third group of people, the philosophers, who really want to talk with him. And so look at verse number 18. It says, then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, these are two different groups of people. I'll explain them in a moment. They encountered him and some said, what will this babbler say? Others, some, he seemed to be a setter forth of strange gods. This is what they're talking amongst themselves. He's talking about strange gods. Why? Because he preached to them who? Say it with me. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, right? They preached to him Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul is confronted with these two groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics. You say, well, what? It sounds like some sort of strange, <laughs> you know, strange thing. Well, it wasn't that strange. It was the two main philosophies of that city. I'm going to explain them. We're going to learn a lot of things today, okay? A lot of things. So the Epicureans, help me out with this. The Epicureans were atheists. That's who they were, most of all. That's what they were known as. They were atheists. They denied God's existence. They denied life after death. They denied a resurrection. They were also materialistic. So they're all about the material world. And what they believed is that the only, uh, that the only thing, uh, th sorry, what they believed is that their life or this moment in time was the only thing that existed. And so because of that, man should get the most out of their life. They were very materialistic. They were very much about pleasure. Their motto was this, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Have you, you've heard that today, right? That's something that carries on today. And so that was their idea is that uh, they would just try to get pleasure. It was the highest virtue, and any sort of pain, any sort of difficulty was like, that's the worst possible thing that could happen to you. You should avoid it at all costs. Only pursue pleasure. Don't ever uh, uh, try to avoid difficulty at all time. They were also what we would call today existentialists, which is meaning living for the experience of the moment. They're like, we just want to live for the moment. And, and by the way, that's a widespread philosophy of today, except we don't call them Epicureans. What we say is YOLO, right? That's what we say. You only live once. That's the same principle right here is, hey, this is all I got. So I'm going to try to get as much pleasure. I'm going to try to experience as many things as I can in this life. And then there were the Stoics. Now, the Stoics were interesting people because the Stoics followed a philosopher by the name of Zeno. They were pantheists. What a pantheist is, is somebody who believes that God is in everything. So they're like, the floor is God. You know, kind of like the floor is lava. No, the floor is God, right? The chair is God. The rock is God. The sun is God. The tree is God. I am God. You, you understand? They're say, basically saying that God is, is everything. They, they believe that he did not exist in a, in a separate, um, ent or as an entity, but that everything was God. And so their philosophy to life was that, well, whatever happens, happens. Today we would say, it is what it is. And that was their sort of mentality is that was whatever, uh, whatever happens, don't get over emotional whether it's about tragedy, whether it's about good things, just sort of be kind of calm right down middle of the road, just sort of cool and calm. Don't let anything affect you. In fact, for them, the highest virtue of life was apathy, <laughs> not caring. <laughs> that was their highest virtue of life was apathy, just not caring about anything. And so you take those two philosophies and what you have are the two major pagan influences in the city of Athens. And it's also the two pagan alternatives for dealing with the sad state of humanity apart from Jesus Christ. 
the sad state that, that humanity is in, this was their explanation or this was their way of dealing with it. And today we've only expanded it more, right? Mankind has expanded it over and over and over again. Uh, some even under the umbrella of religion, but all of it is just mankind trying to deal with the fact that they are lost, that they need a savior, and that there's something missing within their hearts. And so they create, we create all of these philosophies. Well, these are the people who approach Paul. And of course, they were very proud in their philosophy and they come to him and they're not really kind when they come to him and they say, well, what is this babbler saying? Did you notice that there? They call him a babbler. Now, babbler literally means seed picker. <laughs> yeah, you're like, wait a minute, is that, can he say that in church? Seed picker, that's what they call him, uh, a seed picker. Now, we've heard of someone called a hay seed, maybe you've heard that before, you know, uh, but a seed picker is, is literally the translation of this word babbler, and what it means is somebody who goes around and just sort of picks up pieces of knowledge and creates a meal out of it, like a bird would go around and just find like random scraps and put it together, and that would be their meal. That's what they're talking about. They're saying that Paul is somebody that he just like, He's just sort of learned a few things, and he's kind of created this idea or this philosophy or this religion. And so that's what they're saying. Remember, they valued coherent, very logical thoughts and what they consider to be logical. And Paul, when he talks about Jesus and he talks about the resurrection, it wasn't even in a category they understood. It was something so far away from what they believed and what their society believed is that they totally didn't even know what to do with it. It's the same way when we share our faith with people in Vancouver sometimes, isn't it? You ever shared your faith with somebody and they're like, what? Like, it's not even a category for them because they have not grown up. They've never heard about Jesus Christ. And I got to tell you, that's okay. Do you realize that? It's actually okay that that happens because the fact is, is that you don't have to have prior knowledge of God. You don't have to have prior knowledge of the gospel to understand it. Isn't that great? That's, what, that's the great thing about our God. You don't have to grow up in a Christian home. You don't have to grow up with some sort of background of philosophy or some sort of understanding of God, or you don't have to understand some deep truth of who God is. All you got to do is hear the gospel with an open heart, search the scripture, and God tells us that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. That's what's so great about it. There's no prior anything. There's no, you know, get your life right, stop doing drugs, and then you can be saved. It doesn't say that at all. It's just you just got to approach God in that way, and it's just you can be uh, totally open to it, and you can hear the word of God, and that's what's happening here is he's preaching the word. They're like, this guy doesn't, what is he talking about? But at the same time, they are listening, and I like that. They're arguing with him, but at the same time, they are listening because this was the kind of stuff they love. Look at verse number 19. It says, and they took him. And brought him unto Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new doctrine, doctrine means teaching, what is this new teaching whereof thou speakest is? For thou bringest strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. They're like, what are you talking about? We want to know. For, it says in verse 21, for all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear some new thing. You know that? They spent all their time just telling stories and they just want to hear new stuff. Now, I find it so ironic. The people who say Paul the seed picker are, are the same people uh, who spend all their time looking for new things. Did you notice that? Uh, they're, they're like, oh, you're just picking seeds. You're just trying to find stuff. But at the same time... Um, that's all that they do. To me, I would say you're seed pickers, right, to those guys. But that's not entirely the case there. But uh, that's what they're saying. They just want to hear new things. And Paul made an impact. And so what they do is they take him to this place called the Areopagus. Now, did the screen go out there? Oh, I got it up here, Max. Go ahead and go back to the slides. Just scroll down to it. Uh, we're on the, uh, no, you're way past it. Oh, you're seeing my notes. Go away. Go back. Go back. 
Go back. It's the picture of the, uh, quick, write it down. It's a picture. There we go. Areopagus. Yeah, I don't know. The screen's kind of blipping out. Don't worry about it. It's okay. It's okay. Pretty cool, eh? I'll show you this right here. I, I, I really want to go here one day, as I really like, would like to go here and see this. But I want to show you this. So the Areopagus is also called, called Mars Hill. We'll see that here in the passage in just a moment. And it was this outcropping of rock, which is right down here. And it was literally in the shadow of the Parthenon up on the Acropolis, remember? So there's the Areopagus. And then there is the Acropolis, which had the Temple of Athena and uh, the, the, the Pantheon up there. And so Paul was taken to this Areopagus. At the time, it would have been covered in idols. There would have been altars all over. It was a place that they called um, the uh, Council of Ares, or in Latin, Mars Hill. That's where we get Mars Hill from. But it was there that there were thousands of statues. It was there where people would gather to discuss with one another and talk with one another about uh, different philosophical things, and it's here that we see Paul preach to the thought leaders and those that were religiously curious. People who study this message have called what we're about to cover here a masterpiece of communication, <laughs> a masterpiece of communication. I want you to put yourself in Paul's shoes there for a moment, sandals, sorry. I want you to put yourself there. Imagine standing now in front of these philosophers representing two different views, both of those groups, when he shared the gospel, said, what is this craziness? And now they've put him in a position where he is now the teacher. And they give him the floor in order to convince them of the gospel. Can you imagine the pressure? I mean, I can imagine the pressure. I know the pressure every week when I stand up here to preach to you guys. <laughs> I can imagine the pressure of standing before those people. I'll never forget a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to do a funeral for someone uh, who was not a believer, and uh, his son had become a Christian, and so I was asked to do the funeral and, uh, and do a Christian funeral, and uh, no one in there was a believer. And I had about 15 minutes to stand up and preach the gospel to those people. I'll never forget how intimidated I was standing in front of people who really did not care to be there. I mean, they cared to be there for the funeral, but they didn't want to hear what I had to say. And I remember how intimidating that was. And I can imagine Paul when he gets up there to stand. But what we see here is Paul, as he begins to preach, he gives to us an example of what a apologetic sermon would look like. He gives to us an example of how we as Christians should be witnessing to unbelievers. And in his message, what he does is he reveals to them and he shows to us creator God, and how he is the one true God and he is the only one worthy of worship. And so point number three today, remember, this is a continuation of last week. Point number three, what Paul said, what Paul said. All right, I want you to see this here, verse number 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and he said, right, this is what he said. <laughs> ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him I declare unto you. The title of my message today is Declaring Jesus, based off of that verse right there. He says, I am going to declare unto you this one that you are ignorantly Worship. Now, Paul does what any great speaker does, is that he creates, first of all, a point of connection, and then he creates a point of contention. Those are the two things that he creates. The first is a point of, con uh, uh, a point of uh, sorry, contact with them. What did I say? Did I say it wrong? Connection. Well, that's the same idea, contact, connection. Okay, you got it. 
Good. Uh, and, the, and the point of connection here, it actually sounds better than contact, is that he, first of all, realized or I guess expressed to them that he recognized that the Athenians were in their heart of hearts religious almost to a fault. The word superstitious means very religious is what it means. We think of superstition like, ooh, like don't step on a crack, break your mother's back, right? Uh, no, he, he's, a, you know, or, or whatever. I don't know. There's other superstitions out there. But he, for him, it means it meant very, very religious people. And so he says, I perceive and I recognize that you are religious people. And they're like, oh, how did you know? 30,000 idols, right, all around me. Um, But it's very, very religious. And I'll tell you this, our world is very, very religious today as well. They would never tell you that. They would never say I'm religious, but by their worship, they are religious, okay? But then he creates a point of tension, a point of conflict. And the conflict is that he points out is that despite your religion or despite your knowledge, despite your rich history, you still have in your city an altar to the unknown God. (laughs) Did you see that there? He says, I perceive that you have an altar right here that says to the unknown God. And so as a people, they uh, had all of this knowledge and they thought they had covered everything. But just to be safe... They wanted to make sure, and that means, and what that reveals to us is that they believed that there was still something out there that they did not fully understand, that they did not know. Maybe they even believed that he was unknowable, like we just cannot possibly know. That, that sounds like something a philosopher would come up with, right? Well, this is no way that we can know, possibly, you know? And there's people like that, of course, today. But it was that thing that Paul put right in their faces. And what he does is he declares to them that that God that you are ignorantly worshiping, he's like, I want you to know that that God is in fact knowable. You can know who he is. He is the one, in fact, that you should care about more than any of these other gods. And he is the one that can make a difference. And church, we've got to remember that in our lost world that we live in, we need people who will declare Jesus Christ to them. And that's what he's about to do. He's about to declare the unknown. He's about to declare the one that maybe they've never heard of. He's going to declare to them Jesus Christ. Listen, our world is searching. Both creation and their conscience is revealing to mankind that there is a God. And that's why they pursue the gods of this world to try to fulfill that loss or that void that is within all of them. And so they are searching and we need to be the ones to declare. So I want to look at here what Paul declares to them. The first thing he declares is that God is the creator. You can write that down. He declares to them God is the creator. Look at verse number 24. He says, God that made the world and all things therein. Seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. See, the fundamental truth about God is that he is the creator. We got to get that down first above anything else. He is the creator. To us, that does not sound earth shaking at all. But to a lost person, you're like, what are you talking about? (laughs) I thought this world just came. I thought it was just, you know, there was this huge bang, right? And then just all of these things happened and, and, or, or it just came to be, or I can never know. Listen, God is the creator of all things. He created things. And, and, and it challenged their theology. Remember that. The Stoics were pantheists. The Epicureans were atheists. Paul's declaration there by saying that he is the creator of God denied the main premise of their worldview right then. And it's the same truth that we must continue to proclaim to the world. Just like every item we, of clothing that we have or pretty much every item that we have has a little tag on it that says made in 
fill in the country. I looked up, I looked up uh, this week, uh, I thought I was thinking about the idea of Canada Day, right? And you know how uh, sometimes you go to Old Navy and you get a nice Canada Day shirt, but then on the inside it says made in, you know, uh, Vietnam or made in some other, I'm like, it's a big maple leaf and it's made in somewhere else, you know? And that's, that's totally fine. I looked up Old Navy though, the, owned by Gap is the parent company, I think, right? And I was like, how many countries do they make their clothes in? 47 countries. I thought that was really interesting. 47 different countries create uh, their, uh, their clothing uh, and it's shipped all over the place. I don't know why I said that, but you know what I mean. Everything we have has a made in whatever on it, okay? Listen, this world, everything in this world has a made by God. <laughs> made by God. He is the creator of all things. He is the, all, the creator of all things. And Paul here proclaims him as the creator, but he also declares that God is the sustainer. He is the creator, but he is the sustainer. Look at verse 25. He talked about there at the end of verse 24, he doesn't dwell in a temple. And then verse 25, neither is worshiped with men's hands. As though he needeth, needed anything. That's the point. God doesn't need anything. Seeing what? He giveth to all life and breath and all things. Now this would have driven the point of Paul even further because it directly attacked the Epicureans' belief that God is absent. And it directly attacks the Stoics' belief that he is in everything. Meaning, uh, meaning this, God is the giver of life. He is the one who sustains us. He is not contained in creation. He created creation. Yet he is the one who sustains creation. It says that he gives breath, right? There are elements of your body that you have no control over. Did you know that? There's not a one of you in here who can be like, heart stop beating, you know, <laughs> and your heart just stops. You cannot do it. Your lungs continue to breathe. Even if you plug your mouth, you're going to reach a point where your lungs are going to rebel greatly against you and will even physically do things such as cause you to go unconscious so that your body starts to breathe again. Even if you are trying to hold your breath with all your might. You know, as a kid, we see that. Who could hold their breath the longest, right? I was like 20 seconds top. I'm the worst. I cannot do it. You know? Uh, there's only, but there's things in your, in your body. You're not sitting here being like, digest, 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 right? Your mind is not going like, you know, beat, boom, 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 boom. Like, that does not have, it. God is in control of that. I really believe he started that uh, when you were born, and, and it continues to this day. And, and God is the one who sustains things. He is the one who gives us all that we need. He says life and breath and all things. Remember James 1.17 tells us that every good and perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Talking about the consistency of our God. God gave us life and he sustains that life. And I'm so thankful for that today. He sustains it by his goodness. And so Paul says he's the creator, he's a sustainer, but he's not done yet where he talks about how God is in control. Look at verse 26, God is in control. It says, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. And he hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. You know, listen, if you've ever wondered about the diversity of nations in this earth, Paul makes it so clear here that God made us all of one blood. I love that. God created us of one blood, and through that one blood, Adam and Eve, the first people, God put within our DNA the ability for all of the diversity that we see in our world today. How amazing is that? How amazing is that? And, and what it tells us is that the diversity of our world is God created. 
It is of God, and we should celebrate it and be thankful for that diversity. At the same time, recognize that we are one God. We are one before him. We are one people. So he says that we're part of God's design, but then we also see his sovereignty in the order and the rise and the fall of things. Look, he says, he determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. What that means very simply is that God is in control of history. God is in control of geography. God is in control of what is taking place in this life. And he is the creator. He is the sustainer. Uh, he is in control of all things. But I also want you to see that God is also knowable. This God is knowable. I love this message that he's preaching. It's a good message. It's a very good message. He says in verse 7, uh, 27 that they should seek the Lord. If, that's based off of verse 26 where he says uh, he's determined things, the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. That's a key phrase here. He is not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Here's what he's saying. God is not a distant deity. God is not uh, far from you. He is actually close to you. Therefore, because he is close to us, we should seek after him. We should desire to know the truth. Now, he quotes uh, three different poets here. It's really interesting. He quotes uh, from the uh, poet uh, Epinides, which is hard to say his name, where he said, for in him we live and move and have our being. That's actually a quote of a philosopher. And then the quote where he says, for we are also his offspring, is a quote of a guy named Aratus and Clentheus. So what is he saying here? Well, sometimes to understand what someone's saying, it's best to know what he's not saying. So here's what he's not saying. He is not saying here that every person on earth is the spiritual child of God. Okay, recognize that. Some people believe, well, we're all God's creation. Yes, <laughs> but we are not all God's spiritual children. Okay? And we know that because of what Scripture teaches us of how to become the child of God. Think about John chapter 1, verse 11, where it tells us, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It says, as many as received him, to them gave he power, right? When we receive Christ, when we turn to Christ, it is God who gives us the power, gives us the ability. He is the one who does the saving so that we can be the children of God. Sinners can only become God's children through faith, in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is not saying here that everyone is, you know, everyone is a child of God. Yes, we're created in his image, but not everybody is a spiritual child of God. What he is affirming here is that we were created in the image of God, but we must also then pursue after him for our own salvation. And, and this is really a shot at all of the idols that were all around him. His conclusion was that since God made us in his image, it's foolish for us to make God's in our own image. Now, in Greek society, that's what they did. They made gods that looked like humans, that acted like humans, that were angry like humans, that were lustful like humans. And that's what they did. Paul's showing them this is a foolish thing. And it's foolish to uh, uh, really pursue idols in any sense because God is knowable and he wants to be known. So what's the point of doing all of this stuff? What's the point of worshiping all of these other things for us today? What's the point of worshiping after money or worshiping after sex or worshiping after all of these other things of the earth and things that we lust after? What's the point when God wants to know you and you can know God, right? What's the point of having these other idols? Remember he said that they should seek the Lord and find him because he's not very far from us. I love that. 
He's not very far from us. God is not far. I think sometimes we view that like God is up in heaven. And then if someone is like, huh, like, you know, starts pursuing God, that he like quickly runs from heaven, you know, and like runs down and is like, I'm here. No, no, God is near to every person. He's right there. He's waiting. And he'll even put situations that will cause them to think about God. And uh, within their heart, of course, we know is the desire for God. And God is right there the whole time. I love that. He says he's right next to us. All they got to do is turn to him. And uh, it's amazing that it's within the character of God to seek after us. Think about that for a moment. The character of God is to seek after lost humanity. And that to me is just amazing. And so he's telling them God is knowable. But he also says here that God is the judge and God is the rescuer. God is the judge and the rescuer. Verse 30, and the times of this ignorance God winked at. It's like he closed his eyes at. But now commendeth all men everywhere to repent. He says, right now the time is God is calling men to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Who's that? That's Jesus. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Men are to repent. What are we to repent of? Idolatry. If we said anything above God, whether it's uh, uh, our time, our thoughts, our energy, uh, or life, we put anything at all above God, we are worshiping the works of our hands and we are degrading God. And honestly, you're degrading yourself if you worship anything other than God. And if you are putting anything above God, what he's saying here is that you must repent. Now he's speaking to the lost people today. He's speaking to those that do not know Christ. And he says, you need to repent of all of this idolatry. You need to repent of the idolatry of your philosophy and the idolatry of your, your wealth and the idolatry of your wisdom. And you need to turn and repent to Jesus Christ because judgment is coming. Listen, mankind is not moving towards extinction as the Epicureans thought, right? They thought, this is it. I have one life and after that I am extinct. As well, it's not uh, moving towards absorption into the universe, which is what the Stoics believe, that at the end of it all, God is everything, and then I will be absorbed into, uh, you know, as I'm buried, I'll be absorbed into, into God. Mankind is not moving toward extinction or absorption. Mankind is moving towards judgment, <laughs> divine judgment. And today, the call is still the same for us, that we must repent. We must turn away. We must head in the opposite direction of our sin, and we must turn to Christ. That's what repentance means. It's a, a change of mind that results in a change of direction and turning away from it. The judge is real. That's what he says. And the reason we know the judge is real is because of the resurrection. Did you see that there in the verse? You say, what are you talking about? Look at there back in the verse. He says, he'll judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. That's Jesus. Whereof he hath given assurance. Okay, assurance of what? Assurance of judgment in that he hath raised him from the dead. You got to dig into that verse. You got to understand that stuff. We got to know God will judge this world in righteousness. And that means he is the judge. But as well, not only will he judge the world in righteousness, but this is what I love about our God. He also made a way for righteousness. He will judge us in righteousness, but he made a way of righteousness. And that way of righteousness is in his son and through his son, Jesus Christ. This is some good stuff. This is heavy stuff here. This is the gospel here. We need to know this. It, the, the world is going to be judged in righteousness, but God also made righteousness available to us through his son. And this is the message that Paul is challenging them with. I love it. He's just giving it to them, right? He's like, this is, man, I wish I had this kind of boldness, you know? He's just giving them the word. He's putting it out there in front of them. And their response is very, very predictable. You say, how is it predictable? Well, here's why. Whenever God is presented as a loving, kind, 
wonderful God who created all people, people accept that, don't they? But whenever you move to the gospel, which is, you know, God is loving and God is kind, but I got to tell you, there is also sin (laughs) that you need to repent of. That's when resistance always begins to come. Whenever I'm witnessing to a person and I'm like, hey, listen, I got to tell you, God loves you. They're like, yeah, <laughs> God does love me because I'm a pretty awesome person, right? <laughs> Why wouldn't God love me? That, and that's the, the, the humanity of it, right? But you say God loves you despite your sin. <laughs> God loves you even though you are a sinner. And the way to be saved is to turn from that sin and turn to God completely. That's when things always start to break down and resistance comes. And that's what happens here with Paul. He had an interested and a very involved audience And the Greeks were very tolerant of ideas as long as they thought they were theoretical ideas. But as soon as he transitioned to repentance and there's judgment coming and you need to turn to Christ, and as soon as he transitioned to action that needs to take place, look how they responded. We see in verse number four what Paul, or number four, what Paul received. I had added in a fourth point there. Look at verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Immediately there's resistance. Others said, ah, we'll hear thee again of this matter. And then in verse number 33, so Paul departed from among them, howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. You know, the confronting call for a decision was not what these cultured philosophers were looking for. (laughs) And so what we see at the end of this chapter is we see three results. We see mockery, we see delay, and we see belief. Those are the three responses now to the message that he gives. And guess what? We will see that today as well. (laughs) If you share your faith, you will be mocked. If you share your faith, some will delay and say, ah, maybe I'm not ready now. Maybe I'll talk to you about it later. Others will believe. And that's what I love about it is that there are always some who believe. The first two here show that those really didn't care, I believe, uh, when it moved from theory to action. But the third of belief is a reminder that whenever God's word is given, it will not return empty. It will not return void. Now, there are some scholars that I've read even on this passage that argue that Paul was a failure here. Because there was not this great revival like we saw in other cities. It's interesting. They, they really believe it. They're like, he was a failure. Some even argue that, oh, because he quoted poets, that he was, you know, trying a new technique, but it failed. So then we see him go back, to, you know, when he moves to Corinth and goes to the next city. I don't really believe that. First of all, we really only have the outline of his message. Do you really think that Paul only spoke for like three minutes? <laughs> I don't think so. That's an outline of what happened. And he would not have talked about judgment and he would not talk about resurrection without talking about the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There's no way. There's no way that Paul would not talk about those kind of things. And so when, it said, when people say that he was a failure, I, I don't think so. I think he had a good day. Here's why I think he had a good day. Well, ultimately, we should not evaluate Paul, nor should we evaluate any pastor or evangelist or Christian based off of results, just so you know. Because guess what? There's a lot of false prophets who have great results. <laughs> and they fly in private jets, okay? And you're like, whoa. They might. No, no, we cannot base life off of that. Here's what we can judge other people on. You say, don't be a judge of other people. Here's what you can judge. Their faithfulness in sharing the gospel. So when you look at a person, you look at a ministry, you want to see someone, if they walk with God, you can look at their faithfulness in sharing the truth. And that's what we see here in the Apostle Paul. He is faithfully sharing the truth. He is a bold witness. Yes, some mocked. Some wanted to hear more, but also some believed. I love this. Dionysus. Dionysus was a member of the council. Did you see that? 
Dionysus the Arapagite, or man, it's hard to say that, right? Ariagabai, uh, yeah, I won't even try. He was a member of the council. And then we see Damaris, a woman who believed. We don't know anything else about these two people except that they believed in Jesus Christ. Do you know what that tells me? They had a wonderful life ahead of them. <laughs> that tells me that God changed them in an incredible way. You know, Paul here encountered religious pluralism. He encountered in Athens a diversity of worldviews. He encountered intelligent yet biblically illiterate people, and so will we. And so as we look at our world and we look at our influence and our witness, all that we can do is that is, is really is to pray that God would allow us grace as we make the truth of the gospel and the glory of the crucified and risen Christ known to this world. Our message may be a stumbling block to some. Our message may be and seem like foolishness, but to others, it is the power of God unto salvation. I want to close with 1 Corinthians 1.18 today. It says, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish, say that word with me, foolishness. Yeah, to the lost person, it's foolishness to them. But, it says, unto us which are saved, it is the, say it with me, power of God. If there's one thought that we take from the message today, it is this. We must continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ no matter what the results are. We've got to do it. It is still the power of God to salvation. And regardless of its, of its being to a crowd of religious elites, to unemployed people in a marketplace, or to great philosophers, our job is to share Christ and to leave the results up to him. Sometimes the soil is shallow. Mark chapter 4 teaches us that. Sometimes the, the, the soil is rocky and hard. Sometimes the soil is ready to receive the word. But regardless of what the soil is, our job is to sow the seed to share the truth, to point others to Jesus Christ. And if they seek him, he is there for them. That's the joy of it. That's why we sow the seed. Because regardless of the soil, we know that God is along with that seed wherever it goes. And it will not return void. I was thinking today, what if we all had the boldness of Paul? What if we as Christians proclaim Christ in this way without fear? You say, well, I don't know that I can do that. I don't know that I can actually share my faith. Or I don't know that I'm so concerned and I'm worried and I'm scared. And listen, I, I get it. We're all that way. But it all comes back to verse number 16 again, right? It all comes back to verse 16 where it says, when he saw, his eye affected his heart. And that's what it's about. It's about our heart. Is your heart soft to what you see? When you leave this place and you get on the bus or you drive in your car home or you walk home or whatever it may be, is your heart affected by what you see, by the people? Do you ever ask yourself, it's a great practice to do this, when you're walking, when you're out in the neighborhood, to just ask yourself, I wonder if they know Christ. That can change your heart just like that. That's not a judgment, by the way. That's not you like, obviously they don't know Christ. <laughs> That's not what we're doing. It's a simple freshening of our heart towards the souls of others. Because when you look at a person like a lost soul, instead of just a jerk who's in your way, it can change a lot of things for you. Changes the way you, you talk to them. Changes the way that you reach out to them. Even simple things. Today, uh, this week, I, I gave away some stuff on uh, Facebook Marketplace for free. By the way, if you want to get some responses, just put free and on Facebook Marketplace. And I had some stuff outside of our garage that I wanted to just give away. And it was all good stuff. It was all gone within a couple hours, which is great. You know, by 1030, people were picking it up at night, you know. And, uh, but in the morning, uh, there was a, an opportunity. I had something to give away. And and a guy was there and he had trouble getting in his car and he was texting me. And, and so I, I left the office, I went home 
And, uh, and I helped him out with it. And, and the whole time I was driving, God was like, you need to talk to him about the Lord. You need to talk about the Lord. And you know what? God opened the door for that. Do you know how? Because of my City Baptist sticker on the back of our van that has the cross in it, you know, the C, right? And he asked me about it. And we also have a cross on our door. And our doormat says, this house runs on uh, coffee and Jesus or something like that, you know. Okay, so there's a few things like that, all right. Uh, he asked me if I went to church. He thought I went to a certain church or whatever. And we had a, had a chance to talk. Turns out he's a believer, which is really great. And so I was thankful for that. But God was saying, you need to talk to this guy, talk to this guy, talk to this guy, talk to this guy. And I had an opportunity to talk about our church. He's been here for four years, hasn't found a home church. I hope he comes at some point here. Uh, very soon, young man uh, here for school and all of that. But um, listen, we, we just have to be willing to do it. Guess what? I was nervous the whole way driving home because I knew what God wanted me to do. Isn't it funny when God shows us what to do, we get all nervous and scared? <laughs> listen, he's God though. He's in control. Someone may mock you. It's okay. Someone may say, you know what? I'd like to talk to you more about this or I'll hear you again. But others might believe. Our job is to sow the seed and leave the results to God. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning. We hope that today's message was a help and encouragement to you in your walk with God. To stay connected with us, give us a like on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at Van City Baptist. Our prayer is that God will grow and bless you as you pursue His will for your life.